who doesn't want a greener you know, electricity generation, all of these things. We all, you know, it makes us feel good and sure, it's the right thing to do and responsible. But then once you, you know, sort of get your head out of the clouds and actually say, oh man, how are we going to do this? That's where the rubber meets the road. Because in not only how are we going to do it, at what rate, at what pace are we going to do it? Because that's going to dictate a lot of things. We don't know what the, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about things by 2050, we want to do this. Okay. Does anyone really have any sense of what the technology is going to be like in 2040? We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis, joined as always by President and Founder of eRenewable, Mr. Mike Niemer. And Mike, we are full throw into 2021. And first off, great episode with Mr. Jake Jaquez. And uh, for episode 20 with uh, Mr. Matt Beaton from TRC Companies, I expect no drop off at all. In fact, uh, I'm very excited about this episode as well. Oh, as am I, Fred. You know, when you uh, and our listeners hear about Matt's resume and what he's done throughout his life in the renewable space, we know that they're going to learn something that they didn't know before they joined our podcast, which is kind of what the model we try to follow is to be in the education sector for all the, our listeners. And so we know Matt's going to not to disappoint. He'll deliver something no one else knew before they got here. And so that's always exciting. And uh, like you said, Jake last week was a terrific first guest to start the year off. We're looking forward to the rest of 2021. We've got a lot of big guests ahead for everybody. No question. And Matt Beaton certainly going to add to that because, once again, uh, we, we are just – we got a new president uh, on deck. That will go down this week. And then, of course, he's got a, a climate clean energy agenda that he's going to put into effect. And so Mr. Beaton, having uh, been on both sides of the fence, curious to get his thoughts on how he sees all that playing out uh, and much more. But before we get to Mr. Beaton, uh, we'd be remiss. The NEMA News Minute with Executive Director Steve Shepard and Deputy Director Donna Foy, something we're very proud of there. We had our first one a couple weeks ago. Stay tuned now for the second installment of the NEMA News Minute with Miss Donna Foy. Hi, Fred. This is Donna Foy, Deputy Director of the North American Energy Markets Association. We appreciate the opportunity to provide another NEMA update for the Green Insiders listeners. First, news on our ongoing virtual presentation series. On January 13th, NEMA presented its first webinar of 2021. Power Markets in a Biden Presidency by Rob Gramlich, founder and president of Grid Strategies. Rob, who is an expert in economic policy analysis with experience at AWEA, FERC, and PJM, shared his thoughts on the potential impact of the Biden administration on transmission and the power markets. He then led a spirited Q&A session, fielding many questions from the audience on a wide range of energy market and transmission-related issues. We set a new record for the number of participants on this presentation. Our next presentation is Forward-Looking, Problem-Solving, New Market Deal-Making by Sturgis Sobin from City Global Commodities and Travis Wright from QTS Data Centers. That'll be on January 27th at 3 o'clock Eastern. Sturgis and Travis will discuss how outside-the-box deal-making is essential for success in a very competitive, very dynamic energy market. That's followed up on February 10th with an exceptional panel discussion on the challenge and opportunity of decarbonization by Chris Niddle from MIT, Nicole Boucher from the New York ISO, and Tara Fowler from Xcel Energy. 
Brett Estep, who's a member of NAMA's Board of Directors, will moderate. Both presentations should prove to be very informative and timely. As we mentioned last time, we're busy at work on the arrangements for the 2021 Spring Conference that will be hosted by Uniper April 27 through 29 at the Hyatt Regency Lost Pines in Austin. We'll provide more information on that conference in the next NAMA News Minute. On the RFP front, two new RFPs have been posted to NAMA's website. The Energy Authority is handling an RFP for Great Lakes Utilities. GLU is seeking bids for power purchase agreements and build transfer submissions with a commercial operation date between 2021 and 2023 for a portfolio of community-sited, behind-the-meter solar installations and a 20 to 25 megawatt front-of-meter utility-scale solar project. Full attribute battery energy storage will also be considered for the behind-the-meter projects. GLU seeks to procure energy capacity and renewable energy credits for a term between 10 to 20 years for projects that are physically located within MISO Capacity Zone 2. Arkansas Electric Cooperative recently released their 2021 RFP for SPP firm capacity products. AECC is seeking at least 170 megawatts of firm capacity products within the SPP footprint in aggregate from one or more proposed options beginning June 1, 2025. The Alliance for Cooperative Energy Services, or ACES, is the RFP administrator. The Northern States Power, Lafayette Utility System, Direct Energy, and Central Rivers Power RFPs that we discussed last time are still active with proposals due in February. You can find more information about those RFPs at NEMA's website, NEMA.com. That's it for now. We look forward to giving another NEMA News Minute in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Fred. Thank you very much, Ms. Foy, for that. You can go check it out on the NEMA website as well as over at the NEMA LinkedIn page. That's uh, North American Energy Market Association News Minute. And like I said, make sure you go check that out over at the NEMA website and on the NEMA LinkedIn page. And without further ado, Mike, listen, it's 2021. We've told, a little, we've told folks about what we're doing over here at the Green Insider. But let's let the folks know about what we're doing here at eRenewable in 2021. Well, Fred, as always, you know, the heart and soul of our business is the electronic auctions we run for PPAs and BPPAs. And we've now added another division, e-marketing, that we'll do for any renewable or sustainable products if that's needed. We work in the microgrid space, the RNG space, LED efficiencies. We're involved in unbundled recs, and we can help people with their energy master plan. So uh, 2021 is going to be a big year for not only the industry, but also for our firm. And we're looking forward to Some big announcements we'll share with listeners uh, in Q1 coming up. So with that said, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you very much, Mr. Mike Niemer. And once again, uh, for more information about uh, eRenewable, you can always go to the website, eRenew.net, or just get in touch with Mike, Mike at eRenew.net. That's Mike at eRenew.net. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, 20th episode of the Green Insider Podcast. And without further ado, Mr. Matt Beaton, two years almost over there at TRC Companies. He is the Senior Vice President of Renewable Energy and Emerging Technologies, and before that spent eight years on the public sector under Governor Charles. Baker and was an elected official before that state rep. And then you ran your own clean energy company prior to becoming a state official, Mr. Beaton. And so uh, lots to get to here. And, and um, 
I'll ask you right off the bat because again, you've got you, you know, you you've got a very interesting background. And then again, you, you were doing clean energy. You've been doing it. You've been a part of this this field now for what 15, 20 years. And now that this thing is finally starting to come full circle, and here we are in twenty twenty one. I mean, it is all systems go on the clean energy side. What made you decide to take the leap from the public sector where you were the energy secretary to now being on the private side where you've been for almost the last two years? Oh, I found my sanity. I got back to the, uh, <laughs> took me a lot. It took me a decade, but I finally found it and uh, returned back. But, you know, I, I, I looked at public service uh, exactly as that service, uh, not to make a career out of it. I wanted to go in, try to make a difference, uh, spend some time doing that, uh, try to apply my expertise, my educational background, my previous professional background, and then, you know, transition that, apply that to some time in public service. Uh, do that time and and then come out on the other end and return back to the private sector and and you know that was my motivation going into it was my plan from the beginning and and uh, glad I landed at a wonderful company like TRC. You had a pretty good run there, especially those last four or five years with Governor Charlie Baker, and you were actually one of his first cabinet selections. What what was probably the most difficult aspect of because one thing about Massachusetts it seems like is that they're pretty open minded to the clean energy side of things. So it, what what is kind of the general consensus in Massachusetts and kind of the attitude towards clean energy? I think it's finding the balance uh, between pushing it as fast as you can, but being mindful of ratepayer needs and the other technical elements of uh, a dramatic shift in uh, changing the way we use and deliver energy. And I always, I always brought it back to this sort of triangle of cost, carbon, and reliability. All of our, all of our policies were balancing those three things. Of we were trying to shift our way to a cleaner grid, right? Carbon. Be mindful of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and also the fact that in New England, we had uh, um, some of the, well, we had some of the most aggressive uh, carbon reduction programs. We also had one of the most antiquated grids, you know, just by the nature of we're old, so, you know, we, we still had some wires in the ground from the days of Edison. And, and that complicates things. So reliability becomes that much more of an issue. That takes uh, investment. Investment in new technologies to clean up the grid takes uh, you know, money and, and takes a lot of effort. So we, and we, because we were sort of at the literal end of the pipeline, our existing baseline of where we were beginning provided us with uh, the, the luxury of having some of the most expensive energy and in the in the nation. So we had to be very, very mindful of uh, balancing smart policy that advanced us as quickly as we could, uh, that balanced the reliability needs to make sure we kept the lights on and did it in a way that did not have dramatic ratepayer uh, impacts. So that was probably the biggest challenge of, uh, you know, and then there's different advocacy groups surrounding each one of those and balancing all of those interests and trying to make everybody happy was impossible, but uh, you sought out to do your best to uh, try to find a solution that advanced the cause as quickly as you could in an affordable manner. So what were some of those ways that you went out and found some of the ways that you could go ahead and still marry the grid, fossil fuels, and implement some clean energy without breaking the bank and keeping the lights on? Yeah, well, some of our main policies, all of our main policies uh, really got at that. Uh, And I, I would point to a few. One was... We have an abundance of, uh, of, of a natural resource right off our coast and offshore wind. And Governor Baker in 2016 signed, uh, you know, what, what really kicked off the offshore wind industry in the United States and the first procurement of offshore wind through our, uh, our public utilities. Um, we had some of the most expensive or, uh, you know, it depends what side of it is, expensive to the ratepayer, but most lucrative 
uh, solar uh, incentive programs in Massachusetts that uh, was unnecessary to have it be so so lucrative. So we came up with a, a, a smart plan, a declining block program in Massachusetts for our, you know, and basically rethought our our solar policy. We maintained our leadership uh, in being the number one state in energy efficiency, looking at that as probably the best bang for your buck in, in carbon reductions in our energy efficiency programs, or it's best in class in the, in, in the nation. Uh, we also looked to our neighbors to the north and trying to import large amounts of available resources like um, hydroelectricity from Quebec and Hydro-Quebec. Uh, as probably the most cost-effective to, to, uh, way for us to deliver uh, bulk clean energy into our region. Uh, so we, we you know, put an effort forward to um, work with our partner states in the, in, to the north of us and, and, and Canada and, uh, and import some of that technology and come up with new innovative ways like a clean peak standard and incentivize and recognize that some of the high cost of energy that we were um, uh, exposed to in, in New England was given by that uh, th those 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 last um, generating assets that would turn on, and 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 how that would sort of set a high uh, fuel cost for everybody else in the bid stack. So how do we go at that peak demand? How do we lower peak demand and 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 alleviate some of the strain and then the subsequent high cost of energy that that would end up uh, delivering on, particularly on those really cold or really warm days uh, that we have in New England. Two things you mentioned, and we've covered the gamut here uh, on the Green Insider podcast as far as, you know, and one thing that we obviously, as Mike alluded to, that we try to do is, is educate folks. Because as you know, Matt, uh, wind and solar are, are kind of the rock stars, if you will, that everybody knows. But two things you touched on, A, offshore wind, and B, uh, hydroelectric power. Uh, I'm not gonna, you know. I guess for for like using a sports term, those are kind of like the role players right now of of uh, if you will of, of renewable energy. A, how did you got? I mean, obviously, your your the geographics kind of dictated the the offshore wind. One, how close is that to being a major player in the United States? Because you talked about how it kicked off in 2016, kind of for the entire country. And where is hydroelectric? Uh, a, you talked about importing that from Canada. A, how does a process like that go about? And B, where are we at as far as offshore wind and hydroelectric being more of mainstream players or is that kind of are are they going to have niche roles in this renewable puzzle when it's all said and done yeah i think they're going to play major roles uh we're hopeful they're going to play major roles uh, the future will tell that story um uh, that said you know the the amount of potential energy sitting outside on the coast is uh, is just staggering uh when you look at it and working with bohm over the last decade or so um got us to this point into this process, uh, not just in Massachusetts, but through all the, throughout the Northeast and, you know, down into the mid Atlantic. And now we're starting, you know, we're exploring Gulf of Maine and out, out in the Western United States as well for the potential of offshore wind. And I, I would say, when you look at state policy, every state in those regions that have access to that resource are counting on that as a significant piece of the pie of how they are going to meet their lofty goals of whatever the you know carbon reduction goal or the net zero by 2050 goal or whatever it may be that all of these states have most recently put on their books you know the targets uh, for for their individual state so they are going to play a vital resource there's a lot that has to happen from uh, from point a to point b to actually get that to work there's 
special interest concerns, whether it's um, you know natural resource uh, disruption to fishing to navigational issues to the transport and the transmission of that energy, get it, having that all be done in an economical manner, and then it hits land, and then you have the traditional siting issues, and you know there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle to make it to you know to go forward in each area, each state is going to be different, each specific location where we do this is going to be different, so it's not going to be an easy road, but. Uh, we are very hopeful that uh, in the near future, um, you know, looking ahead in the next decade, that offshore wind, particularly as we start to see uh, retirements of uh, traditional generation facilities, uh, is going to uh, supplement that uh, and offset that and start to work its way into being a bigger percentage of the portfolio of electric generation, certainly in the Northeast and you know, mo- very likely throughout the rest of the nation. Real yeah. quick here. Uh, while you're talking about your offshore wind, for our listeners out there that live in the middle of the country and they don't really know much about offshore wind, can you tell them how you guys can make it efficient? Because the the higher cost that's involved in developing that wind project out there versus the fields of Kansas, the wind that comes out there, how does how's the economics play out there? What kind of are there special rebates or tax incentives that are involved that allows that to go through? Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's the it's it's essentially in the way um, that they well they would qualify for the tax incentives, right? There's the there's the tax incentive model, but really it's the power of uh, of 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 the scope and scale of the projects that we're talking about. We're we're looking at 400 megawatt, 800 megawatt tranches being awarded, uh, so significant. So with with that scale comes um, an an ability and an economy of scale that comes with it. And having the secured PPA, so the requirement of the utilities to purchase the resource is the ultimate guarantee. So it's at a, it is at a, uh, you, you pay a premium of the price, right? And the PPA price is above, you know, a regular wholesale market price, a competitive price. So there is that incentive baked in to the requirement, uh, but it starts at the legislative level, authorizing the procurement of that resource by the local utilities. The local utilities do a solicitation, uh, and the various developers come in and put the bids out. So there's that um, a bit of a market distortion built into the process. But recognizing that um, you know technology improvements is another you know significant factor in this, where you know we're not we're not talking about three megawatt turbines anymore, in, you know, which is a big you know land uh, land side. Uh, turbine, we're looking at 10, 12 megawatt turbines right now, which is just who would have thought five years ago we'd be having that conversation. So the technology is playing a huge role in it, uh, in our ability to, um, you know, to create the energy, but it does take that above market, you know, just distortion is essentially what it is to the market right. in, in many ways to catalyze the industry and to do exactly what we've seen in the solar and storage markets where the cost of the technology has dramatically declined once the you know the market had been created that's great i can only imagine how big that uh, 10 to 12 megawatt wind turbine must be from a diameter across it must be huge amazingly huge i i've, I've seen one of uh, one of the blades for one of them, uh, not for the 12 megawatt, but one of the one of the big ones, and it just makes you feel small looking up at it. So that's just the blade. 
Okay, so let me ask you this then. I mean, and, and just for the sake of sounding stupid here, and trust me, that's never stopped me before. Land and offshore wind difference. I mean, is it outside of the turbines and the the way that that, that energy gets delivered? I mean, is that really the, the only difference between the two? Yeah, you know how it's how it's put into the ground, right? It's uh, obviously you're you're in the ocean in one, and you're in the land another, and there's obviously added costs associated with that. But it's also geographic constraint, right? Where you look at Massachusetts, we're not a land rich state. We don't have the option to um, you know, put a lot of turbines in. The few turbines we do have have all been met with uh, extreme uh, resistance and sighting, sighting issues and noise and noise and uh, you know flicker issues and things of that nature. So, we're, we don't have even have the option, right? And we're in, and therefore also limited with solar. So when you look at the available resources, this is by far and away uh, the the resource on scale. That is uh, delivered. Uh, that that is possible to be delivered to us. And you also look at sort of our starting point, right? Where you have that higher cost of energy. It's um, you know the the large majority of uh, energy produced in in New England and in Massachusetts right now is through natural gas. Um, uh, you know traditional natural gas natural gas generation. Everything in the queue historically was uh, you know peakers in the, over the last couple of years. Again, natural gas. And the desire of public policy is to decarbonize our energy portfolio. And um, you have to look at what is your best resource. And when you look around, uh, you know, going at hydro to the north and, and uh, on a bulk scale, yeah. of course, and uh, offshore, you know, to our east are, are most certainly our two best options. Do you guys have any, are there any issues with, and I know because we, you know, we've talked to some folks here in Texas that, uh, you know, obviously when you got to sit, you know, if, if I know that Matt Beaton is in the middle of Texas and you've got some prime real estate, okay, I'm going to go to you and I'm going to say, hey, Matt, I'm going to, you know, can I lease your land and, and you know, you're going to get some kickbacks because we're going to put some, you know, uh, wind turbines on your, your property and, and it's pretty straightforward. We signed some paperwork and that's it, that it's done. How does it work in the ocean? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, there was a swing at it, you might remember from years ago, Cape Wind, and and, and that was sort of a, a failed experiment in Massachusetts. It was, you know, it was way too close to shore, it was tremendous uh, uh, resistance met, um, you know, off the coast of Cape Cod. And that was done, uh, you know, that there were a lot of lessons learned by that. So Bohm took a, you know, sort of took a big, a big step back. And Bohm is the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management inside the Department of Interior. And they, um, they would go out and you know in, into federal waters and look at available wind resources did a lot of analysis and defined certain lease areas so there are these huge tranches of 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 uh ocean space right ocean land footprint that they uh put to auction uh for a number of developers to come forward and did an you know an open auction to um uh, allow for the rights to develop those properties uh and then once secured by the developers they did sort of their technical uh look into uh and research deep dive research into the layout and the feasibility of certain layouts on their lease area and awaited the procurements like what was the first thing that i described earlier in massachusetts the first procurement of hey guys we're ready to buy so give us your best offer our utilities are here you know waiting through the procurement process and uh, give us your best um, offer of what the, uh, you know, how you can deliver this resource to us. And then through that uh, competitive process, there was a ultimate decision made. Um, and that process is different from state to state of a selection of those, um, uh, of the winning bid. And then off to the races through the permitting processes and everything else that needs to occur to like the development of any other project, but uh, certainly with, you know, 
uh, to the nuances of what's required for for offshore wind. How long did that? Pro- how long did from from soup to nuts did that process take? Uh, we don't know the answer to that yet because okay. we don't have uh, <laughs> we don't have any turbines spinning yet. Okay, but. all right. So what, okay, so what's the what's the ETA when we when are we going to see some turbines? Because uh, I know I, I know just from reading one of the articles uh, when you left was that they, they were looking at twenty twenty June twenty twenty being one of the times when uh, Governor Baker was going to make another uh, you know another attempt to get some more uh, you know like good another procurement. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the procurements are still ongoing, right? So okay. all the legwork and all the permitting and, you know, and finding your roots and, and, and doing a lot of the, you know, the upfront work has to happen. What, how, what, what's the timeline of how that leads into, you know, uh, you know, uh, issue for construction permits to really start getting, you know, metal in the ground. I'm, I'm hopeful we see that in the next, you know, calendar year um, in, in, in some instances that we could be an aggressive timeline, but we are on the precipice of, of, of seeing it. And I think with, uh, um, you know, with, uh, an administration, uh, incoming that is certainly, uh, laser focused on some of these issues, I think there's going to be, um, you know, the, 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 the investment in resources needed to expedite, uh, the development of, of, of resources of this nature. So I'm, I'm confident that, uh, within the next year, we're going to see some great progress in the offshore wind industry. You mentioned, uh, and, and we didn't get to the second part of a question I asked about this, the hydroelectric and, and uh, getting that delivered from Canada. A, how did that come about? And B, uh, what, is that, what does that process entail? And was it worth it when it was all said and done? Yeah, I mean, again, another story that remains to be told because the, the wires aren't run yet. Uh, but Okay, uh, we, so okay, we, let me, real quick, real quick. So let me ask you this then. So is that one of the biggest things with, with the, the, the green energy space is that we're still putting together the infrastructure for this thing to take place? And maybe that's where people have these, these, these harbingers or doubts, if you will, because there is that period of, okay, this is all going to, this is all going to, this is going to be worth it when it's all said and done, but I need you guys to bear with us while we're getting this thing put together. Yeah. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges is, you know, an age old uh, acronym of, of NIMBYism, right? Everybody wants renewable energy. Everybody wants a cleaner environment, but nobody wants any of the stuff that requires it to happen anywhere near them. And that is playing itself out. You think it would disappear. Nobody wants a, you know, a, a incinerator next to their house. Right. But, you know, people don't want a transmission line next to their house. People don't, you know, people don't want any of that infrastructure you know, for good or bad, right? For so, like, you know, I, I don't have one over my house, so I can't, I can't opine on that conversation. Um, so I, I don't know what it's like, but it is, it is going to be the reality is it's going to be one of the biggest challenges. And we saw that play out with, um, uh, with uh, our pursuit of hydroelectricity and the resistance uh, by environmental groups. Um, so you have environmental groups arguing against things that would allow for the import of an existing renewable resource. Uh, clean carbon-free resource, and same same with with offshore wind. When you look at all of the challenges of getting the generation and thinking of the history of how we have come to know electricity, we all flip on our lights and have a million gadgets and gizmos flying around us, powering electricity. We don't think about where that comes from. That historically centralized generation, run it through a transmission system into the distribution right to our house, and bam, we have our lights. Well, now we're flipping that all on its head, and we're moving it into a more distributed energy. We, you know, we've got much more localized rooftop and you know, much smaller um, uh, uh, scale uh, r- renewable resources. But then we have the much larger 
uh, utility scale uh, projects, like whether it's you know a large solar field or a wind uh, wind field or hydroelectricity from Canada, wherever it may be, those where those those electrons are being generated at those locations are are more often than not, much more often than not, not located anywhere near the load center that they're trying to serve. So you need to get them from point A to point B. And right now, what we're doing is, you know, the most, you know, everybody, it's a business, everybody's trying to do their project in the most profitable way possible, you're going to go to the point of interconnect and the closest that that needs the least amount of infrastructure investment. And we're plucking a lot of that low hanging fruit with what we're doing today, which is the right place to be. But once we get beyond that, the constraints and the bottlenecks that are going to occur from getting the electrons from where we need them from point A to point B when we need them is going to be probably the single greatest challenge that uh, renewable energy development will face, whether it's getting it in from the ocean, getting it up from Canada, getting it from, you know, the, you know, the, the plain states to, to wherever it is you're trying to get it from point A to point B, we're really going to be um, facing some challenges um, in the years and decades ahead as we continue to build more and more renewables. Uh, well, thank you, because you I don't know if you, you had a chance to peek ahead at some of the questions I had written down, because that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask is, what is the biggest challenge? And, and to you, it's the, tra- it's the transmission, essentially, and, and figuring out the way that that's going to get done as we move forward. Yeah, without question. And we've, we, we're seeing that play out even in um, uh, the amount of work that's going into the early um, uh, siting and routing of um, – uh, of, of some of the offshore wind projects. I saw it on the regular and some of the committees and things I was involved with on regular transmission siting locations. And then hydroelectricity, we talked about that. Uh, we're basically trying to get a, uh, you know, we did an open process for bid selection for uh, cable routes to come down from Canada, but we're in Massachusetts, right? Where when you look at the ISO New England network, where you have Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island uh, making up something like 80% of the load, right? And you have Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire above you. If you're going to import something from Canada, you know, you're not just going to jump over New Hampshire or Vermont, right? Your Maine, <laughs> you're going to partner with them. Yeah. And that's why it's from a, you know, from a policy perspective, working closely in a multi-state ISO to try to collectively accomplish the same goals or different goals if all states aren't aligned to try to work together and saying, how can we help you? You need to help us and support each other in the development of these resources because we needed to run a transmission line through the state of Maine, through an existing right of way, through basically 90% of it, down into, uh, you know, into the load center, into Massachusetts. And that was that was met with tremendous resistance and um and oh, really? don't get me wrong at the end of the day i'm a natural resource guy i'm a conservationist we don't want to you know uh harm our environment but at the same time we can't have the best of both worlds collectively as a society where yeah. we want to transition to renewable energy it's going to require us to change uh, the way we deliver that electricity. And with that, there's going to be some need for development. You're going to have to break some eggs along the way. Is that kind of the, you know, essentially, and, sure. that, and that's where that's kind of the back and forth with folks. How did the state, let, and let me ask you this then, how were the states, uh, and, and shout out to the state of Maine, that's where my daughter was born uh, 18 years ago this Sunday. Um, what, how was their response? How was New Hampshire, Vermont? I mean, you know, we all know live free or die. Uh, what was kind of their, what was kind of their feeling on things? Yeah, um, 
I, I mixed mixed reactions. Uh, certainly, um, some of the projects that you know they were proposed projects, but some of the projects were met with resistance coming through the White Mountains in New Hampshire and okay. under under Lake Champlain in Vermont, and another one um, through you know through parts of uh, um, uh, Maine. And you know, I would say, I, I would say there was great. We have a great relationships in New England. New England's like kind of one big state, particularly when you look at something like Texas, right? It's like. Uh, <laughs> We're, we're, yeah. All of New England, it's basically Southeast Texas. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like we Southeast Texas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a cute little thing we have going on up here, <laughs> but right. we take great pride in it. Um, but we, uh, you know, we 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 have to work collectively, um, particularly around energy issues. And in in every year, our governors and um, um, uh, from from the states in the in the Canadian provinces would get together. Um, and and talk about a whole number of issues uh, affecting the region. And every year, in my former capacity as secretary, uh, the the primary topic of conversation amongst the states was around energy issues and how do we collectively work towards. You know, fortunately, when you look at you know generally speaking, uh, you know all the states are trying to move in the same direction towards uh, uh, you know uh, a cleaner generation uh, of the electricity portfolio. So. We were we were trying to figure out ways to work together uh, and and be supportive of each other. Uh, so there was general, you know, from the government level, there was general cooperation. When you get down into the local township level and town and city level, that that doesn't necessarily always follow suit because you have the local siting concerns, and that's where a lot of those problems bubble up. Uh, so you have to really hit it on a number of levels. You have to start at sort of the you know, the state level, get everybody in, in order and going in the same direction and then work very closely on that local level on uh, the inevitable siting issues that'll pop up when you try to advance these projects. I'm glad that Mike brought up Mike Ducker from Mitsubishi, but he said one of the things that the government could do a better better job of is, okay, we're, everybody's on board with, with renewable energy. Everybody's on board with cleaner energy and, and, and less emissions and, and, and carbon neutral and what have you. But he said one thing the government needs to do a better job of is Let's have the discussion of how it's going to go down. How are, you know, let's have the conversation of, okay, so it's all well and good that we've put this pie in the sky, but how are we going to get there? What's the plan? What's the, you know, what, 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 what's the strategies? What are going to be the regulations to get there? Where do you fall on that side of things and how much government, I mean, again, Biden can tell us, hey, we're going to, you know, the earth's going to be green in, in, in 20, 30 years with, with the, the policies, but how do we get there? Yeah, <laughs> Amen to that. This is all I have to say, because that's the life I lived in my previous uh, uh, world. And, you know, let's try to the, the services that we try to bring forward today, even, you know, at TRC is balancing a lot of this. And and, you know, folks, we, we, it, it's nice to feel good. Right. And say, oh, yeah, of course, we want you've been you know, a Patriot fan. Of course it is. It, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we won't go there on the podcast. Right? I'm, in, I'm in mourning right now, so I'll move on from that. Plenty of room moment. on that Chiefs bandwagon, Matt. Plenty of room on that yeah. Chiefs bandwagon. Yeah, my son's a Mahomes fan, so good for uh, him. It's tearing my heart. You know what? You're um, a good parent. Anyway, continue. <laughs> um, so you know, it, it it is very easy to you know who doesn't want to you know you know gr- greener uh, absolutely you know, electricity right generation. It'd be silly things. not we to. All, you know, it makes us feel good and. Sure, it's the right thing to do and responsible. But then once you, you know, sort of get your head out of the clouds and actually say, oh, man, how are we going to do this? That's where the rubber meets the road, because, it, you know, and not only how are we going to do it, at what rate 
at what pace are we going to do it? Because that's going to dictate a lot of things. We don't know what the, you know, we're, we're talking about things by 2050, we want to do this. Okay. Does anyone really have any sense of what the technology is going to be like in 2040? Uh, are we going to have, are we going to break through with nuclear fusion? Uh, are we going to see major transitions in uh, a hydrogen economy? Are we going to have full electrification of our vehicle fleets? Are we going to have fully, um, you know, invested in our building envelopes and in most instances, in, you know, between buildings and transportation, dwarf anything that we're talking about in the electricity generation? There's a lot of pieces to this pie that people don't necessarily think about. You know, the energy we use just to condition our buildings is huge. And we want to electrify there and and, uh, you know, there's things individuals can do, like my house, uh, you know, I live in a passive house, right? You can, I basically don't have a heating bill all year in New England, don't have it all the year long. There's things that you can do. When you think of the millions of structures out there in the, in the country, to be able to do that, that's going to take a lot. And a lot of that is privately owned. How are we going to do it? There's only so much that, you know, government can dictate and do, and we can do it in the generation. You can mandate things and you can do all this, but we need to collectively do it from a number of different areas and, you know, in transportation in and of itself, flying planes, we're going to stop flying planes. Are we going to come up? How are we going to fly our planes? Right. What's that going to look like in 2040, 2050? So, I mean, the pathway to get there, when you start thinking about all the things that need to happen, electric vehicles, okay. How are we going to get the, you know, electricity to the generate all the abundance of generation of, of uh, EV charging stations we're going to need to electrify a full fleet. Um, there, there's a lot that goes into all of those solutions and it, it's um, and and every one of them costs comes with a lot of money. So how are we going to do it in an equitable way? Because that's a whole nother piece of this, right? Oh, it's, um, you know, our electricity is too low and we shouldn't be worried about the constraints of high cost of energy. It's, uh, you know, climate change is too important. Well, that's a very easy thing to say when you're sitting living comfortably in your home and, uh, you know, with a good job and, you know, you can, you can get up on your soapbox and say that to people. But what about the person that's struggling, mm -hmm. that is a rate payer, that is going to feel the rate payer effects? Are our policies going to protect those people that are going living paycheck to paycheck just to keep their lights on in their house and put their kids in school and all of that? That is a thing that gets lost in this conversation that used to just get my blood boiling and, and, and being mindful of those people of, oh, we can't just throw away the conversation of, hey, this costs more. And in the name of climate change, we need to do everything today. We need to figure out how to advance this forward because it is going to cost more money and how we do it in an equitable manner that thinks about those people who don't you know, have the ability to just say, do it at any and all costs at any pace as fast as we can. In your 20 years in this industry, do you see us getting any closer to now? I mean, the, the fact that that issue is being raised now and now we've got a president who, again, has gone all in on clean energy, hasn't talked about how it's going to be done yet. And I got to I mean, again, I got to believe that there's going to be after, you know, after we after the inauguration and everything kind of gets well, I hate to say back to normal. But when we get some semblance of normalcy back in the White House. Do you foresee him? I mean, there's got to be a conversation, right, about how this thing's going to move forward and how we're going to go about achieving these net zero emissions. Because, again, it sounds great, but at the same time, too, let's not pretend like fossil fuel. It's not like we're going to stop pumping gas tomorrow. And I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm always fascinated by is that don't we have to kind of find a, a mix between the two for the next five to 10, 20 years if we're going to make this thing viable? hundred percent. We, we, hundred percent. We're kidding ourselves if we think otherwise, because just look at even in, even in progressive new England, right. Where you have, 
some of the most aggressive policies between New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire's, you know, live free or die. Um, <laughs> I love New Hampshire. But, um, you know, we, when you when you when you look at, you know, the desire uh, to, to, to and, and, and how long we've had policies in place and the desire to move these things forward, it's the percentage we're still probably in single digits on a regular day of what percentage renewables is in the overall electricity portfolio the overwhelming majority 60 70 percent of our electricity generation is coming by way of natural gas today if we think we're just going to flip a switch and that dynamic is going to change and we're going to be able to balance reliability when the sun's not shining keep in mind too in in massachusetts in the northeast we have a 13 percent capacity factor for solar so for those who don't know what that means, 13% of the time that that solar panel is sitting on the ground, it's generating electricity. Well, what about the other 87, 87% of, of time? How are we going to balance that off with other resources? And that's the beauty of, you know, offshore wind supposedly has a 55% capacity factor. Okay, there's still 45% floating out there. You need to balance that. We need to integrate storage. We have all these things that all come at a premium, a price premium for the market you know, as it exists today in the wholesale market. So if we want to talk about bigger, broader things, and who knows, a whole nother podcast on carbon pricing or whatever it may be, that, you know, you're really, um, you're, you're, you're really challenged by, again, going back to that holy trinity of things that I discussed in the beginning of cost, carbon, reliability, balancing those things out and advancing that agenda for, you know, a clean energy economy, but doing so in a way that does not dramatically disrupt the economy, doesn't dramatically disrupt reliability because you want to talk about economic disruption, start having brownouts and blackouts and you know things of that nature. But then also you need to be really mindful of every ratepayer and mm-hmm. every single person that pays that bill, not just the people who live comfortably that are there advocating for these issues and being loud and in charge. It needs to be a balance of those three things. And you're the senior vice president of uh, renewable energy and emerging technologies. What are some of the projects you have on your plate, and what uh, what are you guys trying to get done in 2021? Yeah, we've uh, we've got a great great thing going. We've got a lot of momentum, a lot of wind in our sails. Uh, we provide a whole host of services. TRC, uh, you know, uh, broadly as a company, is an engineering consulting firm, construction management firm that provides. I think it's you could, we could call it environmentally focused solutions mm-hmm. to a number of different markets. Uh, power market is uh, one of our biggest uh, industrial sector, transportation, real estate, things of that nature. Um, but we uh, we we've, we've always worked and historically worked uh, on 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 power related issues, uh, working for uh, every major utility and uh, providing solutions and, and you know energy related solutions. And we had been. Uh, uh, we've provided historically uh, a number of services to renewable energy development. And when I, when I joined the company about two years ago, we recommitted ourselves and realigned ourselves internally to be more, you know, a more serious uh, player to take all of the things that TRC does from early stage land development, all the way through the environmental uh, constraints analyses to, you know, biological surveys and wetland permitting through civil and uh, electrical design and can basically be there for our clients from start to finish to assist them in their overall development project and, and get them uh, to their construction phase. And we, we support solar development, wind, land-based wind development, offshore wind development, storage, 
uh, new technologies like renewable natural gas, uh, hydrogen, you name it, we're, we're involved and we leverage a lot of the expertise that you sometimes historically wouldn't think of being related to renewables development, but you know our, our, our company's history in oil and gas and, and uh, leveraging our, our deep relationships in the power, power sector and the power industry has really afforded us uh, to be able to play in the market space in a very unique way where we're able to offer such a breadth of services as sort of a one-stop shop to quickly be able to advance your projects forward. Get you out of here with this. What A, what do you miss most about the public sector? And B, what skill experience do you think has helped you most uh, for your current role? That's a great question. I think the thing I, I, I miss the most, two things. I think our, uh, I miss working with the people, particularly our governor. He's an amazing person, incredibly smart guy that just taught me a lot of lessons life and management and things of that nature. So that's probably, and then the experiences you got to do. I got to do some really cool stuff in the environmental side of that job. That was uh, pretty fun. Shark tagging, one of them, that was pretty cool. Well, there you go. So, yeah, so I miss that stuff. Uh, but then, you know, the thing, the, the, the biggest lessons I would say is, you know, a tremendous amount of management lessons, but I think re- what really opened me up is um, the, uh, the, the, the amount of perspectives and it, it just allowed, exposed me to a number of perspectives that I never would have been able to have. Um, you know, like an example of like, you know, the ratepayer, you know, every, that wide spectrum of ratepayer from the person living in a mansion to the other person trying to struggle and, and just uh, understand the perspectives and how decisions you make uh, dramatically affect them. And, uh, you know, you, that, that sticks with you and carries you into, you know, it's a driving force, even into the work that I do today, knowing that we're, uh, you know, we're trying to advance something that has a greater societal benefit than the immediate thing that's in front of us. And being part of that in a bigger picture is just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really cool opportunity. And that's what makes, you know, this place that, you know, you guys and we are all operating in, in this place of this energy transition so special, because this is a, this is a once in a lifetime point in time and a generational point in time with the amount of transformation we're seeing. And it's pretty cool to be part of it. Thanks once again to Matt Beaton, Senior Vice President of Renewable Energy and Emerging Technologies over at TRC Companies, which we learned today, Mr. Mike Niemer, based out of Windsor, Connecticut. And, of course, they've got offices here in the great state of Texas, uh, right here in H-Town. And uh, listen, as we do with each and every episode, i got to believe that uh, we took away a little something new from the uh, renewable side of things and what's going on in the great state of Massachusetts and just kind of a, a, a general feel of what's going on in, in New England as a whole. Yeah, that was the exciting part. It was just hearing how all the New England states are working together and trying to uh, find a way to bring green power up into the East Coast, to the Northeast Coast, and uh, what they have going on offshore. Uh, I think it's just incredible to think of the size of the wind turbines that are going on in the ocean. I mean, Matt provided us a lot of information that we never would have had otherwise without him, and we appreciate his time today. It was very educational. Well, and kind of like with uh, when we had our boy Tim Eccles on from the state of Georgia, and of course Tim, uh, Tim is still part of uh, the state of Georgia as far, as far as state commissioner, but Matt was able to give us a little peek behind the curtain as former energy secretary there in Massachusetts and just everything that goes into and, and you know, again, we've had guests that have kind of touched on this a little bit, but to be able to get a little more, you know, a little bigger look behind the curtain is just the amount of money and just work that it goes into 
on the renewable side of, okay, yes, we want to put offshore wind or hydroelectric, whatever it's going to be. There's again, there's a process that takes place for that. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, that we're going to find out. And then one of the things that you and I'll dive into more and more in 2021 is just how is that infrastructure being done? What are the processes behind it? And where are we in putting in these processes? Because again, as you, as, as he alluded to, everybody wants it, but is everybody ready to do the, the, the you know the, the work that needs to be done in order to facilitate it and make it happen? And of course, he mentioned environmental groups. <laughs> you know that, that 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 there's a little push there's a lot from of them in New England, yeah. And we there's know there's a lot, a lot of them in New, New England. England. That's for sure. So, yep. but no, great stuff from him, and uh, we certainly appreciate Matt Beaton and the folks over there at TRC Companies for help making this possible. Make sure you go give us a like over on Apple iTunes. Give us a subscribe. Give us a five star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy after you stop by than before you came in. Of course, it's on Google as well. Definitely check out all of the episodes. And, of course, uh, stay tuned because we've got a handful of folks coming as well. And then, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank everybody over at NEMA, Steve Shepard and Donna Foy for the NEMA News Minute. Good stuff from them as always. So, Mike, great episode from you as always and the entire team over at eRenewable. For Mr. Mike Nemer, I am Fred Davis. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Green Insider Podcast. The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Good night. God bless. Now I've got that-